Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest is Duncan Wardle, the former head of innovation at Disney. He sent Buzz Lightyear's space. He's created an Olympic pool on Main Street Disneyland for Michael Phelps to swim in. He's opened numerous parks in his 30-year history with Disney and even helped create the Magic Band, which I'm wearing right now. I'm a big... Yes, yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so, wait, wait. So which one did... Wait, wait, which one you got? <laughs> I've got the yellow one, the yellow one to go with my oh, yellow tux. Duh, that was a, yeah, I should have. I walked straight into that. That's <laughs> an easy question. Duncan, I'm a huge fan of you. Excited to have welcome you on the show. And yeah, I'm wearing the Magic Band right now. We surprised our entire mm. staff with a trip to Disney just last week and uh, experienced it for wow, ourselves. Wow, nice. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Here's the thing. Here's what most employers don't get that you just told me that you did. 99.9% of employers don't get it. They think it's customer first. You're like, oh, please stop. So it's employee, depending on the industry, obviously, but I would argue for most of the industries, it's employee first. How do I know that? Because Walt understood it. Mm. And he understood that his employees, ultimately his cast members, would take care of his guests eight hours a day and have far more impact on the guests' intent to return, intent to recommend than he could ever have. So few companies, they say they, they talk it, but they sure as heck ain't walking it. Well, I appreciate that, you know, and I get a lot of inspiration from you. And the reality is the name of our company, and yes, we have the Savannah Bananas baseball team, but the name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. And we believe our biggest fans and our goal is to make our team members, our teammates, our people, our biggest fans. We do a lot of those trips and we learned a lot from Disney. And you brought up Walt. Walt, I have a custom poster of Walt in my office. Uh, It says vision and his quote, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. That is a lot of what you have done at Disney and what's been built on this whole innovation culture. I'd love for you to, if you could start, I know you learned a lot in the traditions in 30 years, start with a little bit Walt Disney himself as a pioneer of innovation. Can you share some of the things that Walt did and how that got built into the framework of okay. Disney? Yeah, Walt used all the tools. Walt created the tools I use today. So the first tool Walt created was, I'm sure a lot of the people listening to the podcast have rules in their industry. I'm sure they wonder why they do a weekly report every week when nobody's reading it. I'm sure they wonder why they keep going to weekly meetings. And I say that, it's a bit facetious, but there's lots of things that go unchallenged. Why do we do it that way? Because we've always done it that way. So Walt created this tool, which I use today to innovate, called What If. At least I call it What If. It's about looking at your industry, challenging all the rules, writing down what are the rules of your industry, and then picking one and saying, hey, what if that rule no longer existed? So for example, in 1940, Walt created a film called Fantasia. It was a classical masterpiece. It was, set to, it was an animated piece of film set to classical music. It uh, didn't make a whole lot of money. Walt actually wanted it in 1940. He was such a visionary. He wanted it to mist inside the sequence of delay push hours. He wanted heat pumped in during night on a bare mountain. And the theater owner said, no, Walt, too expensive. We would never do that. So Walt listed the rules of showing his movie in a movie theater. It's dark, it's dirty, I have to go to set timer, I can only watch one movie at a time, I have to watch the previews. I, Walt, can't control the environment in which guests experience my movie. So he said, what if I could control the environment? Well, that wasn't provocative enough. The more provocative and absurd your what-if question, the further you get out of your river of thinking. And so your river of thinking is your area of expertise. The more experience and the more expertise we have, the more we jump into our river of thinking. My river of thinking in Disney is very fast, very wide, very deep, but we're being asked to get out of that river of thinking more quickly and more often because of the level of disruption that's coming. So 
the more provocative your what if question, the further out of your river of thinking you'll get. So the second question he asked was, well, what if I take my movies out of the theatre? If you know how to solve it, it's not innovation, it's iteration. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, well, if I take my movies out of the theatre, well, they can't be two-dimensional because they'd fall over. Well, I don't own screens, so what should I do? Well, wait a minute, what if I made my movies three-dimensional? Well, if I make my movies three-dimensional, I can't have Cinderella living next to Jack Sparrow and uh, Davy Crockett because people wouldn't be immersed in her story. She'd need a different land. Oh, wait a minute. I'll call it Disneyland. Boom. The biggest creative suggestion or idea of the 20th century. Fast forward, Walt was the master of another tool that I like to call re-express it. How might we simply by re-expressing the challenge stop you thinking as you always do and get you to think differently? So now this is a bit of interaction. Here we go. So I'm going to throw out a challenge and I want you to say the first three or four things that come into your mind. Let's say I'm coming to Savannah, Georgia. You and I are going to go into business together and you and I are going to open a car wash. You know, tell me the three or four essential ingredients we would have to put in it. <laughs> you know, I've heard you do this before, but yes, the, uh, it, with car wash, we're thinking about the building, the water, the soap. We're thinking about the people, the customers. Right. If I said auto spa, now what could we put in it? <laughs> and we're thinking about everything to create a spa-like experience. So you're talking right. about- well, Yeah. All I did was re-express the challenge. And instead of just jumping into your river of thinking of, of the things you know to belong to a car wash, you've got to consider what could be in an auto spa. So Walt, on July 17th, 1955, said, we will not have any customers in our park. We will only have guests. And with that simple re-expression of a challenge, consider created a level of hospitality that's never been replicated or duplicated, despite the fact that everybody's tried to change it. He also said, we won't have any employees. We will only have cast members. And they'll be cast for a role in the show. They'll wear a costume, not a uniform. They'll work on stage, not backstage. And again, with that, gave us all a badge of honor that we would bleed Disney. So now fast forward that tool into, okay, well, how do I make that relevant today? In 2011, if we'd ask the question, how might we make more money, which I'm sure is the question that lots of our listeners ask ourselves every day. The challenge with that question is it worked from 1920 to 2020, and it was driven by Wall Street. The next generation is Generation Z, and I'll come back to them in a moment, who care more about purpose than profit, who would challenge everything that we've done for the last 100 years. Not only will they not buy our products and services if they don't believe in what we stand for, they don't want to work for us. Well, how the hell are you going to be relevant 10 years from today if this new generation doesn't want to work for you? So instead of asking the question, how might we make more money? If we'd asked that question, you could have put the gate price up at Walt Disney World by 3%. People would have perhaps complained. Everybody would have come and Disney would have made their quarterly results. But instead of asking that question, we asked the question, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Well, we knew what the biggest consumer pain point was, as you described just before our call. What are those pinch points? Well, the pinch points are going to Disney is standing in line. And we said, and we used that other tool that Walt said, what if there were no lines? What if we took away and eliminated the front desk in our resort hotels, the turnstiles at the entrance to our parks, the need to stand in line for your favorite attraction or character meeting greet, or to get lunch or to pay merchandise? Well, again, if we said, how might we make more money? As we mentioned, we'd have made 3% profit margin by putting the gate price up. But by asking how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point and using Walt's tool, we came up with RFID technology, the Disney Disney's Magic Band, which you got to experience a couple of weeks ago, which you're staying in a Disney resort hotel now. It is your room key. It is your theme park ticket. You don't wait in line to get into the theme park today. It has your reservations for your favorite character meeting greets and attractions on it. You swipe and go. You want an item of merchandise sent to your hotel room, you touch it once. You want it sent to your house, you touch it twice. Mm. I save my hot dog with my pickles on the side. 
it's on my smartphone. I'm going to Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today. I walk into the restaurant. The restaurant recognizes I'm here. I touch table 47. Food comes fresh to me. And so instead of saying, how might we make more money by simply re-expressing the challenge, the average consumer at Walt Disney World now has between 90 and 120 minutes free time a day they didn't have four years ago which has resulted in, ooh, let me guess, record revenues, record revenues on merchandise, record revenues on food and beverage, no capital investment required, no new land, no new attractions, no new parades, no new fireworks. And data, God bless you, every second of every day, the consumer is now live crowdsourcing the future design of all the products and services Disney Parks creates simply by telling them what they like and what they don't like by where they go with their Disney parks. So Walt was the master from which we can still learn. Yes. So I wear this magic band. I'm wearing it every day to remind me to continue to think differently about our fans. Our president keeps it right in his office. He looks at it every day. It's a symbol because as kids, we came and we remember there were different tickets. I know Disney back in the day, they had books that you actually had to pay to go to different rides. It was a completely different innovation. And I think the great point, Doug, and you talk about is questions about how do you make more money? We ask the question, how do we create more fans? And it starts with that that what if thinking, those problems. You know, you think about it in the baseball industry. Hey, it's a nine inning game. You sit in one seat, you watch the game. The players stay on the field. They just play the game. You park your car, walk to the park, all these different food items. It gets expensive. They have advertisements during the game and all over the stadium. We've written down all those rules. And our question is, all right, is that really where people want to be? If we're a fan ourselves, do we want to experience that? And is that what you advise? It's like, hey, write down the rules and then say, all right, put yourself in the shoes of your actual consumer. Yeah. You know, we spend time with our consumers. I'm a great believer in big data, but I'm also a great believer in getting out and spending time with our consumer. And so, so do you have kids, by the way? Yes, I have a two-year-old. Okay. So our task by Disneyland Paris was how might we get more people to come more often and spend more money? Our data told us who could afford the brand, who had an affinity to the brand, who'd been shopping online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Our data told us they were 10 out of 10 of coming this year, but they didn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. So we went out using somewhat our intuition because our intuition was telling us our data was missing something. We went and lived with consumers for, you know, one consumer each for a family for a whole day. And here's what we found. When we asked how old the, photo, the children were in the photograph above the mantelpiece, on average, the child was anywhere from two years to 22 years older in reality. And we thought, well, that's weird. Now, how do I know that to be true? Well, let me think, because if you're a parent, you have those photographs of your children, you know, were taken when they were two, but probably now they're a lot older. For those of you listening who are much younger, how do I know it to be true? Because your parents have that dorky one of you on the living room wall that you wish they got rid of years ago (laughs) before your boyfriend or girlfriend came around. And so we thought, hmm, there's something here that why is it we keep all these old photographs of our children? Do we not print new ones? Yes, we do. We print photographs on their wedding day. So we dug a bit deeper, and here's what we learned. Don't forget, our going in hypothesis was if we build it, they will come. Because Why? Because that's the way we've always done it here. But by simply spending a day with a consumer, we learned, your average consumer, you ask them, you know, if you're a parent, what do you want for your children? They'll tell you they want to want their children to go to kindergarten, junior school, middle school, high school, college, graduate, get a job, be happy, healthy, and successful. Or do they? But do they actually want to keep them in that little photo frame when you walk in the door at night? You're still a superhero. Right now, you're a superhero. And they'll grab your legs, and, you, and it's the best days of your life. But they told us about these three bittersweet transition points that take place between a parent and a child, which once you cross through, you both want to step back, but you both know it's too late. And I remember where I was for all three of these transition points, and I can use my intuition. I knew exactly where I was the day my son, at the age of 10, asked me if I ever sent. <laughs> and in that one split, in that one split second, that will happen to you one day too, unfortunately. 
in that one split second, their imagination, their creativity, their belief. And what, what hurts so much for you as a parent is what they've just told you is, I'm not your little boy anymore. I'm growing up. That hurts. And if you ever have a daughter, the girls listening on this phone call or who are this podcast, you will not remember where you were that fateful day, but your dad does. And you can test me as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. You can text your dad and ask him. And he'll tell you within a split second where he was. I know exactly where I was the day that my daughter was 13, the day she dropped my left hand in public for the first time outside of Panera in Kissimmee, Florida, because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore because it was embarrassing. You ask your dad, they'll ask you, answer you in a nanosecond. They'll tell you if it's their left hand or right hand. And then I know exactly, uh, I remember when we, uh, last year she got her first job. So instead of driving her up to college and back, we flew her up to New York, we packed her into her room, we hugged, we cheered, we laughed, and then we got in the car out to the airport and cried her eyes out all the way to the airport. Mm. Don't forget, going into this project, our data told us if we build it, they will come. That's a capital investment strategy of hundreds of millions of dollars. But what we learned by simply spending a day with our consumer and listening to our intuition and understanding what was missing in our data was that mum does not wake up in the morning worrying about whether or not Disneyland Paris is going to have new product this year. Mum wakes up every morning worried about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a segmented communication campaign, one that drove significant results and turned a somewhat product-centric, we-know-better culture into a very consumer-centric one. I would say that I love this because it's the emotional connection. So what, how did, obviously, consumer focus versus product focus. So you said messaging. What was it that exactly oh. Disney did to start sharing this? Well, so we created three segmented spots. One aimed at parents of small children, Disneyland Paris, while they still believe. One aimed at a dad of a tween daughter because you could break his heart and that second while she'll still hold your hand. And one of parents of older children while they're still here. But here's the other thing. You can get to these insights for innovation by actually behaving like a child, childlike, not childish. <laughs> Our data very often stops at the first why. Our children, we're, you know, we're, I'm sure Cooper, what's the name of your son? Sorry. A maverick. Maverick. So when he's challenging you, he's going to say why. And you're going to say something. He's going to say why. And you're going to say something. You're going to say why. Because they're really good at getting to the core consumer truth because they know you didn't tell the whole truth the first on the first answer. So they're going to keep digging. They're actually better sometimes than your data and your consumer insights team at getting to the real core consumer truth. I constantly ask, insights for innovation come on the fourth or fifth why, not the first or second why. And very often your data and your focus groups only go as deep as the first or second why. If you act childlike, not childish, and ask the question, so why do you go to a Disney park? If you stop at the first why, somebody might say, oh, I go for the new rides. Well, okay, great. That might, you know, that's a multi-million dollar investment strategy. But if you pause for a moment and just ask why, okay, well, what, why exactly do you go for the rides? Well, I like Small World. Why on earth do you like Small World? <laughs> I remember the music. Well, why is that important to you? That reminds me of my mum. Why is that significant? Oh, I take my daughter now. On the fifth why, you just found out it's got nothing to do with a new capital investment strategy whatsoever of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on something she doesn't want. But it's actually why she goes is for memory and nostalgia. That's a communication campaign, one that would save you millions of dollars on not building something she didn't want, and one tied specifically to what's important to her. But we often, our data and our, our insights only go to that first or second why. The other thing I find, a lot of us rely on focus groups. I don't know if you do focus groups, but it's that weird setting, isn't it, with yeah. <laughs> 10 or 12 people on the other side of a two-way mirror. And if yeah. you ask somebody, do you live in a house or an apartment with a two-way mirror and people spying on you, people get quite defensive and they say, no. Well, of course we don't. Well, it's not really a relaxed environment for getting real truths out of people then, is it? 
Now, the living room, on the other hand, it's not just what they tell you, it's what you see, such as the project where we saw those photographs. It's more important than that because um, if you get in focus groups, we tend to invite 10 or 12 individuals into the room and we ask them questions, but we know that they know we're on the other side of the mirror and to a certain extent they tell us what they think we want to hear. And if you ask somebody, what do you go at Di- what do you do at Disney? A man will say, oh, I go on the thrill rides, I'm a manly man. <laughs> but you and I both know if his wife is sitting right next to him, she's going to go, uh-uh, no, no, honey. You did small worlds and two times back to back last year. You really loved it. You get real honesty out of couples that you don't get out of individuals because we police each other. I call it the self-regulating honesty policy. Mm-hmm. And by getting couples in a living room, in their living room, it's again, it's not just what they tell you, it's what you see that will confirm or deny the data. But they're also 100% more relaxed. And that's when you find the real insight. Yeah. I love this, Duncan, because again, a lot of this innovation, we talk about fixing the customer's problems and solving those and changing the rules in the industry. But what it's coming down to from hearing how people feel, it's the experience you provide, it's those moments, it's the nostalgia. And again, a lot of that is as you're designing, if I hear this correctly, it's like, how do you create those peak moments, those special things, whether it's, again, Disney from the spells to the characters coming out to all those different things. Is that part of your mindset when Disney is like, how do you create these special moments? Well, here's the thing. Walt realized that it's experience first, retail second. If I were to ask you to name or list your listeners, the top five most successful retail shopping malls on the planet (laughs) per square inch, nobody would think to mention the ones that actually are. They would be Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland, Shanghai Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris. Why? Experience first, retail second. So let me give you a very specific example of that. Two examples. One is physical retail. Physical retail is so boring. I walk into your shop, there's lots of shelves with lots of stuff on it. Therefore, you are a commodity. If you're a commodity, I can buy you on Amazon. Thank you very much. I don't need to bother going. But if you're an experience, so for example, before Universal opened Harry Potter, Universal Studios was the steel rides guy. Disney was the immersive entertainment brand. Now Universal Studios have realized that what was a Coca-Cola retailing at $2.75 is now a butterbeer and it's retailing at $18.50. <laughs> what was a plastic stick that I wouldn't give you 50 cents for? No, no, sir. To you, that's Dumbledore's wand and that's $64 plus tax. Look at Generation Z will not own cars necessarily. They won't own houses. They are buying. They won't own things. They are buying experiences and people can't already see it. Where do you think Airbnb came from? Where do we think escape rooms came from? Why do we think your baseball experience is, is as good as it is? Why do we think that the Museum of Ice Cream So I saw a little boy in a museum in Brussels about six months ago. It's probably three or four. He he almost went up to a painting. And if it wasn't for the museum guard, I swear he was going to try and swipe. Why? (laughs) Well, because he didn't know any different. That's why. And I felt like I was a dinosaur. But here's the thing. If through augmented reality, which is not expensive on your iPhone, if Vincent van Gogh could actually step out of the painting, rip off his ear and say, hey, let me tell you why I cut off my ear. Suddenly, I'm turning that museum into an experience. I mean, Pokemon Go, I'm sure you've had Pokemon Go around where you were. I live on a street where there aren't many kids. But you know what? The day that was created, I had a thousand kids on my street going up and down collecting Pokemon that weren't actually there because they created an experience. And we are now moving away from the marketing economy into what I call the experience economy. And brands that don't get it will not survive. You know, I think so much about that, you know, like Pike's world famous fish market, they're selling fish, but they're throwing it, they're making it a show. And you think about how do you serve beer? How do you serve food? How do you serve anything? How do you make it where it's a show and not just here's your soda? Yeah, exactly right. If you've gone on YouTube and you just type in Le Petit Chef, 
it's amazing. This most simple piece of technology, a camera on the ceiling, pointed down at the tablecloth of the table. And as you sit down for dinner, a little hole appears in your tablecloth and an animated hole, but you can all see it at the same time. This little chef pops up and tells you what's for dinner. Then he goes away again. I mean, it's just genius. Wow, I love this. Hey, I do want to get into how do we, these innovative meetings and how to get into, I know you love, you've really developed some great science and data behind that, but from just Disney, I'd love a few more examples in either these experiential things. I mean, I, my team just went, we had a great time, but other things that you were a part of that you've seen really either created some special moments that just a simple little adjustment on how things were sold, how things were served, or how things were presented from Disney. Surprise and delight. It's that something that's not on the agenda. It's also, it goes back to Walt creating cast members. I have a friend called Hector Rodriguez. I started in the Rose and Crown pub in Epcot in 1986. He's still there. He's still driving the boat. But on the odd occasion when he comes into the house, he comes bursting through the door. He's a jolly big Puerto Rican lad. He comes bursting in the door. He's 53. Massive smile on his face. And I say, hey, you should see what I did for that guest. And he'll tell you with enormous pride about the smallest, silliest thing he did for a guest today. Why did he do it? Was he financially incented to do it? No, he's a Disney cast member. It's what you do. And it's this ability to surprise and delight. But you merge that with technology. We haven't talked a whole lot. We've talked a little bit about Disney's Magic Band and about the tool. But think about what Disney's Magic Band now does that allows you to surprise and delight. I know you're visiting Walt Disney World. I know which hotel you're staying in. I know it's your last day today. I know your daughter's favorite characters are Anna and Elsa. I know you haven't met them yet. I know you're in a 45-minute wait for Space Mountain, but what if I text you right now and tell you they're right outside and I could save you a fast pass to get back in line? Mm. Suddenly you're a hero in the eyes of your daughter and your intent to recommend and intent to return will go through the roof. Mm. Surprise and delight. It's funny because in cost-cutting, it's the thing that we tend to let go of and yet it's the one thing people remember are the small moments, mm. not the big ones. Yeah. And it's the personalized. It's how can you know your people? I mean, obviously, this technology eliminated lines. Well, at least they made them a lot better. But again, they gave you the opportunity to personalize and create a great experience. And that's why I'm thinking it's how can you know your people better? And again, I think the big point, Duncan, that with Disney, it's not all 100,000 plus people that are yeah. showing up that are getting this. It's here and there, but that's enough. Yeah. Well, but also with Disney's Magic Band, it allows you to individualize create an individualized, personalized, customized experience at scale. That's not easy to do. No, it's fascinating. So I've heard you talk a lot about when you're trying to create this innovative culture. Well, first of all, you found, you, did, you studied on what, 5,000 people throughout Disney on what was prohibiting innovation. Can you share those? Yeah, the five barriers. We surveyed 5,000 people at Pixar, Lucasfilms, Marvel, Disney, et cetera. And we asked them what were the barriers that got in the way. And number one, by far and enough away, is time to think. Yes. And so I'm going to address that first of all. So if I were to ask you, and I know you've heard me speak, but if I were to ask your audience to close their eyes for a minute and just picture where are you and what are you doing when you get your best idea? Now, you can open your eyes. I know what the answers are. Shower, walking, commuting, in the bathroom, waking up, falling asleep, driving, and not one of you thought the words at work. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? Because you're paid to have big ideas at work. So picture that last verbal argument you were in with somebody. You don't have to tell anybody about it the more honest you are with each other, the more uh, benefit you receive. So picture that argument. Okay, the argument's over. You're angry at Fred. Fred, you son of a bitch, you blind copy my boss on that email, you bastard. I'll never work with you again. You storm out of the office. You go over to your local coffee shop. You get your cappuccino. You're so angry, but you're beginning to unwind. You sit down you relax. It's five minutes after the argument. It's over. And what pops into your mind? That killer one-liner, <laughs> that one perfect line. 
that you're like, oh, if I'd have said that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'd have had him. The perfect line. <laughs> Do you ever come up with a perfect line during the argument? No. Is it always five minutes later? Yes. Is it very frustrating? Yes. Could you write volumes and volumes of killer one-liners you've never delivered? Yes. Here's why. Your brain in an argument is very busy. It's defending itself. And guess what your brain looks like in the office? It's doing emails, it's doing presentations, it's doing PowerPoints, all sorts of things. And we hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think. The number one barrier to innovation. And yet the moment you stepped away from that argument or you stepped into the shower, boom, the big idea of the killer one like, why? Well, because here's how your brain works. Your brain goes through four brain states on any given day. Most of us live in what I refer to as busy beta, which is that brain state where the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed and you can't access your subconscious brain. But your subconscious brain is 87% of the capacity of your brain. The moment you relax, that door between your conscious and subconscious brain opens just wide enough, enables you to open up the access to the other 87%, which is where you come up with the killer one line or the big idea. Mm. So when we're stressed at work, how do you get into that brain state? Well, option A, we could bring showers to the office, uh, <laughs> but that's probably not politically correct. Option B, you just run an energizer, which is a fun exercise that lasts. You'll see me do them in all the sessions I run. They last 60 seconds to 90 seconds. All I'm just doing is listening for laughter. The moment I've heard laughter, I know I've opened that door between your conscious and subconscious brain just wide enough, just like when you're in the shower. You can still make an informed decision, but you can still have big ideas. What what Um, would be an example of an energizer, Duncan? Oh, ask everybody in your team who doesn't know how to play rock, paper, scissors. Everybody knows how to play rock, paper, scissors. So you pair everybody up, you get them to play rock, paper, scissors. And if you lose to me, then you get behind me. I put my hand up. You become my most loud, vocal, obnoxious English soccer hooligan supporter. I go against Peter. I beat Peter. Peter now gets behind me and he's cheering for me as well. So I create my tribe and you go on and on and on doing the best of one till you get down to two finalists and then you do the best of three. And you'll be amazed at the laughter and energy level in the room that you listen to. And again, you're just looking to open that brain state just wide enough. Now, a lot of us say we get our best ideas when we're falling asleep or waking up. Well, that came from Thomas Edison, the expression, when the penny drops. It Literally, he would put a penny between his knees, a tin tray on the floor, and he'd fall asleep in his armchair. And as he would fall asleep, the penny, his muscles would relax, the penny would drop. It would make a noise, and he would wake up and write down whatever he was thinking. Well, you might think, well, that's stupid. Why would I do that? Well, fair enough. But guess what? Who had dozens more patented inventions in the 20th century than anybody else? And so if you are one of those idea- people who gets their best ideas as you're about to fall asleep or wake up, keep a notepad by the bed because you promise yourself you won't forget the idea by the morning, but invariably we do. And the other thing is, is you're planning an ideation session. Always brief it in three or four days ahead of time. Why? Because people will go to all those places where they are when they have their best ideas. They'll fall asleep. They'll wake up. They'll go for a walk. God hope they have a shower in the four or five days. So that's time to think. Number two is we're risk averse. We've got quarterly results to meet. And so we're not going to take a risks. So Wall Street has made us risk averse. Well, there's a real challenge. We're going to have to take risks now. And so I was asked recently to give a talk around innovation to the world's largest tool manufacturer. They make more hammer chisels and saws than anybody else. And I thought, how could I learn more about their consumer? So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go down to Home Depot and Lowe's for the day. Not the sort of place you normally find Duncan. Not exactly the DIY guru. I just got lucky if I could screw in a light bulb. And then DIY in Swedish, forget it, all bets are off. All you hear is swearing coming out of the bedroom, Duncan and his Allen key. And I watched and listened to the consumer at the point of purchase. And I went back to talk to because they couldn't understand what purpose is and I, or why they should invest in purpose. And I said, look, 
this new generation C, they've never heard of your brand. They're not talking about your products or the price point. What they're talking about, what's important to them. We're going to build our dream bathroom, our dream kitchen. We're going to remodel our dream apartment. I said, mm-hmm. your purpose, if you choose to create one, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. Yes. And they looked at me like I was mad. And I said, well, <laughs> let, wait, if you're the brand who helps people build their dreams, could you be in sports? Yes, entertainment, hospitality, finance, banking. You could be in any line of business you want to be. And they're like, no, we make tools. We're really good at it. You're like, yeah, you do today. But if you're the brand who can help people with their dreams, they could expand into anything. Why do they need to expand? Because 3D printing will eliminate tools in less than a decade. Yes. So we're printing houses in Houston, Texas today on a 3D printer. Amazon spent billions of dollars shipping every year. They don't want to continue to do that. They want you to print it. We didn't have a smartphone 15 years ago. So don't tell me that 15 years from now, you won't print 35% of what on your 3D printer in your living room. If I can print a coffee table or a chair, what on earth will I do with a hammer, a chisel, or a saw? <laughs> but because they don't have a purpose... They can't see it. And so they will make their quarterly results for the next three to five years, and then they'll be gone. So yeah. that's number two. Number three is consumer insight is underused. Uh, we, we all, why? Because we have a consumer insights team of six people, and everybody else is told you're off the hook. No, I believe everybody's responsibility is the consumer and being attached to the consumer. And it might be as simple as, to your point, if you run a baseball stadium, then go sell peanuts for a day. Yes. Go, go be the dugout kid for the day. Go sweep the strands for the day and really, truly understand what's important to your employee. And then then go spend a day in the living room with one of your consumers. You'll be mm-hmm. amazed at the insights you can find. They might be in your data, but they're on page 37, bullet point 14. A, you're already asleep. And B, if you weren't already asleep, you can't feel data by simply spending time with your consumer. So that was to number one, um, time to think. Number two, risk aversion. Number three, consumer insight underused. Number four, ideas get stuck, diluted, or killed as they move through our process. Why? Because the people with more experience start killing them. That's why. And number five was we all had a different definition of innovation. So we set out to create one. And and people say, you know, why did you leave Disney? You were there 30 years. Are you mad? You were head of innovation creativity. I say, yeah, well, actually, I'm looking at it. I can see it from here. I got the 30-year bronze Jiminy Cricket. Thank you for the magical service (laughs) statue. And sort of mortality kind of creeps up on you a little bit. And I looked at it and I thought, God, I got to go do something different. And then I got my life insurance policy update about two weeks later saying, yeah, 74, you're out. Like, oh, well, thanks, guys. Here's the thing. There's a monstrous gap in the market. All of our C-suites are standing up saying, we must innovate. We must yes. take risks. We must be brave. You must think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, yeah, that's great. Can you show me how? Yes. And nobody's showing us how. And I thought, you know what? Good God. All I have to do is create a toolkit that makes creative problem solving and innovation easier creativity tangible and the process fun. When I say fun, I don't mean hysterical laughter. I mean enjoyable. You cannot change a culture, as most C-suites think, by talking about it. (laughs) Your people have to do it for you. So guess what? Create a toolkit that makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. And Fred and Sally will use that toolkit when you're not around and you'll be stuck. This is about innovating at scale. It's about giving a toolkit to your employees that everybody chooses to use when you're not. I love it. Some of this thing's great. You know, the consumer insight. I love that. We started doing undercover fan a few years ago where every one of us, we actually park with the fans. We come in with the fans. We sit with the fans. We experience the fans. And now we're doing frontline fan day where we actually be one of our frontline people. And you said that Disney executives do the same. They have to work in the park. That was from yep. you. Beautiful. I love that. I want to get your definition of innovation. They said everyone was one of the challenges. No one knows what innovation is. What's your definition of innovation or the definition of innovation at Disney? There was a different one at Disney. I, I tried to boil everything down because I always think companies make things too complicated. 
when you are in finance, marketing, insurance, engineering, no matter what, sales, somebody will come up to you at some point in your career and say, oh, you're not the creative around the second floor. You're like, oh, for God's sake. We were all born creative. You used to play in that little box that, you know, you got your toy for Christmas, you got it out of the box, and you spend all the time playing with the bloody box. We're all born creative. Just get it drilled out of us. Education is actually the biggest killer of creativity. So I define it this way. I define creativity as the ability to have an idea, and innovation is the ability to get it done. Oh, I like that. You've said before, if you know how to do it, it's not innovation. Correct. If you know the answers, then that's iteration. And yeah, you'll get your quarterly results, but then mm. you'll be gone. Like, hey, Duncan, talk about, you know, I love to start with laughter to open idea sessions. We have idea paloozas every month. And I'll tell you, when we're having fun and drinking, the ideas are a whole different level. It's a lot more fun. But you said, you know, you got to make it fun to be truly creative. Whether there's the meetings at Disney or the groups you're working with now, I love that exercise. What other examples of how do you make it fun and get everyone no, else? Yeah. And it's not necessarily always about making fun. It's about signaling. Signaling is a creative yeah. behavior that ensures you get the behavior you want out of people yeah. before the meeting starts. So I might draw a picture of a birthday present and I'll ask people to guess what it is. Somebody will say it's a present. I'll say, yes, I know you're physically present, but I need you mentally present as well. Do we all agree to put our cell phones away? I might draw a picture of a cell phone jail just inside the door when people come in. Everybody smiles, but guess what? They all put their cell phone in it. So here's the thing. You can't go up to your boss or your client when they get their cell phone out when you're presenting to them. But you could go back to the picture of the present and say, hey, guys, remember we all agreed to be present? And I'll watch them put their cell phone away, but I didn't have to ask them to do it. Images create a light touch. So, for example, did you used to watch American Idol? Oh, yeah. Okay. Randy, Paul, and Simon, what did they used to sit behind? The desk. They were the judges. Yeah, right. A table, and they were the judges. When you put somebody on the other side of a physical object to you, they will think reductively, and they will judge your work at every stage. So instead of standing at the front of your meeting with a PowerPoint presentation and boring everybody to death, print your, have the courage to print your presentation out. Stick it around the walls, start and, go, and then invite your clients or your boss to come for a walk with you around the wall of the boardroom. Don't leave them behind the table. Why? When you go for a walk with someone, you turn a presentation into a conversation. And when you turn it into a conversation, they will think expansively, not reductively. And so when you leave them behind the table, they will think it's a finished deck. They want to add value. They want to add idea. But you're telling them it's already finished. So they're going to find holes in it. If you go for a walk with them, they will not think uh, reductively. They will think expansively. And you'll find them building on your work. If you think I'm mad, I am. And I'm very happy to be mad. But here's the, no, I'm just being silly. But here's the thing. Try a test. Do the same PowerPoint presentation you've always done on a mate. Leave them behind the table. Record their feedback. Then go and do it the way I suggest and record their feedback. You'll be amazed at the difference between reductive thinking versus expansive thinking. Also, your choice of words. If you say to somebody, I'm scheduling a meeting, uh, scheduling a presentation for next Tuesday, you've already invited them to think reductively and they haven't got in the room yet. But if you actually just, and again, at the end of your presentations, we tend to say, what do you think? If you say, what do you think? We're inviting them to think reductively. But if you just turn the, reframe the point of view and the question, say, could you help me build on this work? Could you help me think about this idea a different way? You'll be amazed how expansive people think. If I were to ask your listeners who here has boring meeting rooms at work, I know everybody's going to put their hand up. Why is it gray? It's gray like cheapest color in corporate America. So the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank went out and asked their local art school. Everybody has a local art school within five miles of where they work. They took their boring meeting room and they asked the students of this art school to come in and paint it into a greenhouse. They put a green carpet down 
and they call it the greenhouse. And everybody knows when they're in the greenhouse, they're expected to be expansionist. So you're clearly setting the ideation session up before you walk in the door. I love this so much. And just the greenhouse effect. Are you having greenhouse meetings? Are you having presentations to see whether it's going to go forward or not? And I think greenhouse is just the image of building it. I love other language. I said, hey, can you help me build on this? Instead of saying, what do you think? And don't, you know, what are some other ways to present? If you're coming to a group of people, Duncan, you and me, I think we're idea people. We love ideas. But often people think, how can they challenge the ideas as opposed to how can they build on it? What are other language things that we can go into a group or try to get uh, expansive? Uh, so the biggest takeaway, if you take away nothing from this conversation today, just take it. So actually, we'll do it live. Come on. Now, are you more of a Harry Potter fan or a Star Wars fan? <laughs> I know both of them. I'm not a huge fan either I way, but I'm very aware I of them. I won't hold it against you. We'll pick one that you're more passionate about. It doesn't have to be Harry Potter. Uh, let's say I appreciate the world of Harry Potter and what it's done. All right. Okay. So. You and I are going into business. We're going to, we've been asked to design a party tonight. We've been given a $100,000 budget, pretty good budget. Um, I'm going to come at you with a series of ideas. And I want you to start each of your responses with the words, no, because, okay? And then tell me why we shouldn't be doing it. So we could turn your house into the Hogwarts dining room, right? And we could have a sorting hat at the front door, which could sort out the good people who get into the Gryffindor table and the bad people who get into the Slytherin table. No, because it'll upset some people. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what. What if we... T- oh, wait. What about the magic potions room? We could actually create alcoholic cocktail beverages. <laughs> no, because the kids can't come to that room. Okay, all right. Oh, wait. But we could do... But we could all get a stick and uh, run around outside pretending we're playing Quidditch and look like idiots. <laughs> this is so hard for me because I'm not a no-because guy, <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Come on, no-because. All right, no, because it just won't work. All right, we can't have the... We can't do it. All right, okay, so... I'll reframe it this time. I want you to start, same brief, $100,000, Harry Potter party. Oh, we'll make it a Star Wars party, what the hell. Well, $100,000, this time you must respond with the words, yes, and must be the first two words you use, okay? So I'll tell you what, we're going to tell, we'll invite in the Savannah, you're in Savannah, right? Yes. The Savannah Philharmonic Orchestra, all dressed as stormtroopers, and we're going to have Darth Vader conduct them using his lightsaber. Yes, and we can have all cool, unique, merchandise and create a fun experience for people to uh, actually play the roles of the other characters. Yes. And we'll make an adult theme party where all the lightsabers are full of a glow in the dark favorite alcoholic beverage. Yes. And yes. Yes. And then we can have a huge star Wars themed fireworks show. Yes. And we could have it made out of drones where it could actually say in a galaxy far, far away, made out of fireworks. <laughs> so anyway, you get it. So here's I love the thing. We tend to say no because, we start with the words no because, because the more experience, the more expertise we get, the more reasons we know why this new idea won't work. And we always start with no because. But if we simply started with the words yes and, remind ourselves, green lighting this project for execution, we're just greenhousing this idea together. If you say yes and, here's what happens. As you notice, the idea got bigger, not smaller. But far more importantly, what also happened was this. When we'd finished, whose idea was it? It was our idea as a group. Yeah, exactly. The moment you can transfer the power of my idea into our idea is the moment you can actually accelerate its opportunity to get done. If you're approaching that, Duncan, and you're bringing to group, you say, all right, hey, guys, this is going to be a greenhouse meeting. We're going to talk about how we build on this. Is that the language? And say, hey, yes, yes and is the I'll language. Tell, yeah, yeah. I'll tell them we're an expansionist session today. You don't get to chew anything down. And if anybody says no because, I make them stand up just like an alcoholic, put their hand in the air and say, I'm a reductionist. And everybody smiles, laughs, cheers for them. 
and they sit back down and their expansion is <laughs> I love it. Then that doesn't happen as much. No, exactly. Uh, I love it. That's how you build these meetings. You say, hey, we're going to be a yes and, we're an idea culture, and we're trying to grow and try yeah, to eliminate look, the reductionists. Well, yeah, at the right time, right? I mean, we can't be expansionist all the time every day. It would be a lot of fun, but we worked on it. At some point, you have to move towards, it's about very clearly signaling, we're in an expansionist session today, or we're in a reductionist session today. I love it. Duggan, I want to do a few games with you, if that's okay. You did some with me, so mm. it's on my turn now. Fire on. All right, Innovation Showdown. So I'm just going to name something, an industry, a type of business, and maybe you could say, hey, one idea that you would think to innovate, maybe using some of your toolkit, okay? Sorry, I didn't say that. So basically, I'll name a business or an industry, and then this is the Innovation Showdown. You can name one industry would do to be innovative. All right. Okay. Here we go. So is it the industry? Is it okay? Now go on. Go for it. Let's it's go. Industry. So like first one. So like we just talked about this pre-show, a business conference, like social media marketing world or any. Oh time. shoot me. So, okay. Stop being boring. Stop being selfish. Jesus. The first conference you went to in uh, 1974, and the last conference you went to, 8:30 till nine o'clock networking. The coffee is bitter. The orange juice is sour, and the croissants are two days old and a little stodgy. 9 till 9.15, what happens? The sponsor gets on the stage. Oh my God, I've got the stage. I'm going to bore the living daylights out of everybody. We go to a keynote speaker who's so full of themselves, promises time for Q&A, but are we ran out of time? We go to a networking break. We come back to the panel of doom. How do we know it's the panel of doom? Because a third of the audience are doing their emails on their cell phone. That's how you know it's the panel of doom. We go to lunch. It's yesterday. Steak, shrimp, and chicken left over from convention services. We come back to a breakout group. Always the best part of the day. Never long enough. We finish with a rah-rah speaker. They've got beautiful teeth. They bounce up and down a lot and say life is good. We leave and somebody said, so, how was that conference in Savannah? And a week later, you sort of go, oh, my God, I can't remember. And then you think, well, what have I learned to help me think differently, grow my business? Answer, you haven't. Why? Because people learn by doing. They do not learn by listening. Conferences keep booking speakers from Apple, Amazon, Nike. Why? Because I can sell tickets. Yet you'll come. I'll make lots of money. Stop being selfish. If somebody's giving you a day of their time, hello, give them something back, something of value. So, so I think, confer- sorry, keep going. So you just, I love it. You started with the rules of the industry. You went through it. Stop being boring. That's how we looked at baseball. So what's something that you would do? So workshops for a start. But here's the thing. Here we are. Let's face it. The conference industry has just fallen off a cliff, and rightly so, for the next few months. So I was out in Copenhagen last week. I flew over. They cancelled the conference while I was in the air. Thanks, lads. Uh, (laughs) But here's the thing. They turned it into a virtual conference very, very quickly. They live-streamed it and enabled everybody to participate. They actually gave them back their money and live-streamed it and got over 1,300 people to participate. And so everybody got value. And so I think the other thing is, again, turn them into workshops, make them into learning experience. Wouldn't it be great if you could crowdsource one particular challenge ahead of the conference and say for half a day, hey, we've crowdsourced this challenge. This is the, you give them five not-for-profit challenges. You let your conference attendees say, this is the one we're going to solve. Then you bring somebody in to run a workshop and actually go and solve a real challenge for somebody else. Wouldn't that be cool, right? And we all feel good as a result. I love it. Because again, start with the framework, the rules of the industry, then you go and what are the biggest customer problems? How do we solve a problem? Right. Crowdsource. I love it. Can I give you one more, Duncan? Yeah, come on, bring it. All right. Let's go an Italian restaurant. An Italian restaurant. Wow. Okay. So, or it can be regular, right? It could be any restaurant. I went no, Italian. No, I no, no. Stay, stay, no, stay on Italian. It's good. It's fun. So where in so again, restaurants are fairly formulaic, but they're going to need to create. Can you still hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, so they're going to need to create an experience. So where in the world? So here's how this tool works. You list the rules of your challenge. We need to get more people to come to our restaurant more often, spend more money, and immerse themselves in our brand. 
then you ask yourself, so step one, list the challenge. We've just done that. We need to get more people to come to our rest. We are suffering because Generation Z want immersive experiences. There's your challenge. So how might we create more immersive experiences? Step one, list your challenge. Step two, go around and ask yourself, who's really good at solving that challenge? Well, we know Disney's good at it. We know that Apple is good at it. We know Starbucks. Who, where else is, do you know your baseball stadium's good at it. So then you pick one, let's say Disney. Okay, we know Disney's good at it. Well, what does Disney do to create immersive experiences? Well, they pump in smell. They pump in sound. They have cast members. They have characters. They do character meet and greets. They do, and you go around and list all the things they're really good at. Or let's say Pokemon Go has created a great experience. How might we create an experience that enables people to play some sort of a game associated with our Italian food to create the, to follow and create this magical recipe before they get here? We'll actually serve the recipe at night. How cool would that be? And then they'll get virtual points back in the game to continue to engage with our brand when they're not in our restaurant. That might be one way of doing it. Another way, let's think of another way of doing it. How might we crowdsource the recipes of what we're going to serve tonight? How might swipe right restaurants, who, you know, Twitter creates an experience or Tinder creates an experience. How might we create a swipe right theater, uh, restaurant experience where people could see who's coming to the restaurant this month and actually choose who they'd like to date and actually go to the <laughs> restaurant with them. That would be a very different experience, right? right? I mean, that's a really good tool is about asking, listing the rules of your challenge or uh, the one rule, asking who else. It's, so Netflix is creating experience. Well, what have they created that we're not doing four years ago? Binge watching. Ooh, how might we create an experience that's so compelling people want to binge eat in our restaurant all the time? Ooh, what if we created a new breakfast menu we haven't done before? I what if we it. created free Wi-Fi? What if we created free food for students for lunchtime? What if we got, oh, you know, just, so yeah. I got to give you a hundred. This is amazing. That was outstanding. I got to give you a hundred percent credit. Our last idea Palooza just three days ago was inspired by you by solving. Oh, a problem. wow. And, and here's you. why we asked a question. We used to always have a theme. We turned it to a question. One of the biggest problems that we have every game sells out. We're fortunate. People can't get tickets. But fans still leave here early, even though we have nonstop pep bands and senior sits and dance teams and entertainment. So the problem was, what would it look like to get 100% of our fans to want to stay to the end of the game? And we asked that question, and all of us started putting ourselves in our shoes and came up with ideas from Bananas After Dark to special 912 parties to different things that are happening. And it came inspired from you. And I just, I want to thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. I got one more for you. I got one more for you. Okay. So... Firework, drones will replace fireworks within less than five years. Why? Fireworks are very expensive. Fireworks, you blow up the product, you can't use it again. They have noise pollution, they have environmental pollution. However, with drones now, miniature drones, go look at, if you haven't looked at it, go look at, I think it was America's Got Talent, or maybe it was Britain's Got Talent. It was a group of Japanese people who created an indoor firework show made out of drones. (laughs) Now, at the end of your baseball show, even here's the thing now you could do daytime fireworks. Daytime fireworks are crap because it's covered in smoke and nobody could ever see anything. But drones don't create smoke. So you could create a daytime or nighttime fireworks show made out of drones that could actually spell out in the sky Felice Cumpleaños Juan or Thanks <laughs> for Coming Johnny or Will You Marry Me Sarah? I mean, my God. Yeah, they'll stay to the end of the game just to see which message, what surprise, what if, how might we, what's the surprise we're going to create every single night? Yeah. So tonight's surprise is somebody's going to invite somebody to marry. My God, come on. I'd stay for that, wouldn't you? I love it. Well, sitting and watching our whole staff, 25, 30 year old, young, a lot of many millennials watching the fireworks, but more the the light show and the the show on the magic at the end of the night. It was fascinating. And people stay for those moments. And what I did was that 
I actually caught myself watching, but I caught myself watching people and seeing kids' reactions and adult reactions. It was really special and goes back to how do you create the moment. So, I mean, Doug, I know we're coming to the end here. And is there some quick win or something that listening today and say, all right, I can bring some of the power of Disney and the way they make you feel. When I can go to my staff, I can get together, I can say, let's do this together. What's a quick win someone could take from this to think differently? Do what you love. You'll be really good at it. You're so passionate about your baseball stadium. It will be really good. I'm really passionate about mad ideas and helping people think differently. I mean, people say, why did you leave? Are you nuts? I've earned enough money in the last two years that now I'm going to go do what I really want. I'm going to go and solve. Uh, I'm going to go out, going out to Australia for a month. I'm going to do free workshops every single day for 20 days back to back for not-for-profit organizations to help them survive and thrive. And I'm not getting paid a penny and I'm going to love it and I'll be good at it. And you're bringing creativity to the world. Do what you love. You'll be really good at it. Yeah, outstanding. Well, Duncan, thank you so much. Like I said, you've made thank a bigger you. impact on our team than more than you know. One of these days, we'll get you to come out here and see a bananas game. But again, thank you, you know so what? much. Bro. You're not so far away. So once we get through this madness, I'd be delighted. All right. Well, thank you so much, Duncan. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Right at four. Oh, I appreciate it, man. You're outstanding. Seriously. No, not at all. So I love the Italian restaurant. Hey, um, when it goes live, do send me a link so I can post it on my social as well, please. Definitely. I will. I will. Cool. It'll be in about a couple right, months. Super. But seriously, uh, great work and good luck with everything coming forward. And no, look- thank you. What are you doing at the moment? Are you, your game's off? I mean, we start, we're lucky. We start in two and a half months. So it's just our... Oh, okay. Yeah, thank God. I thank hope you. we're good. Our whole business. I mean, we just yeah. eliminated all advertisements. We eliminated all... I mean, our whole revenue is our fan experience. So yeah. we're hoping for the Correct. best. Good for you. All right, my friend. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Doug, and take care. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.